But I know I'm not a talk show host or a media commentator any longer. That's not my job today. My job today is to serve each and every Albertan with everything I have and to the best of my ability, however imperfect that may be at times. Well, look, it's a well-known fact that talk show hosts are erratic and unstable and should not be involved in governing anything ever. Um, but maybe there's a sense that there's a bit of a perception problem around who Danielle Smith is. So as the premier took to the airwaves last night, it wasn't just about announcing policy. It was about maybe a reintroduction of sorts uh, to Albertans, the same Albertans who will decide her fate and her government's fate come May. But certainly there were some announcements last night. It was interesting to see the premier blame government spending for inflation while announcing $2.4 billion in inflation relief to accuse the federal government of vote buying, maybe engaging in a little bit of herself. $2.4 billion, as mentioned, in what's billed as affordability measures targeting Albertans. Uh, the gasoline tax will come off again. There's going to be $600 spread out over six months uh, to uh, families, middle and low income families for each child under 18. Seniors will receive some of those benefits. And there was more. The Premier touched on the Sovereignty Act, which is going to be introduced next week. And as mentioned, talked about herself. Joining us for some thoughts on uh, what transpired last night, what we read into it. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Rick Bell, columnist for the Calgary Sun, calgarysun.com. Rick, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. So why the televised address, do you think, as opposed to uh, a news conference, say, to announce these measures? Well, yeah, she could have had a news conference or uh, next week there's going to be a speech from the throne. You mm -hmm. could, you know, announce it, uh, announce it there. Yes, I think she wanted to hit the reset button, obviously. She stumbled out of the gate when she became leader. She was uh, quickly giving uh, many Albertans the first impression that she was, uh, you know, uh, you know, she might have so you know, ideas that were not uh, perhaps as electable as they should be for, uh, you know, in May. I mean, there is a May election. Yep. And, uh, you know, she was stumbling out of the gate. There was a poll that came out that said, a reputable poll saying that uh, the NDP were ahead by, I, I believe it was nine points. Uh, and I, I think the people around her, the people who want to win the election in May, uh, believed that she had to come out and show another Danielle, a Danielle different from what the image seemed to be emerging in the early days of her leadership. Yeah. So I think that was it. And then, because polling shows the number one issue is affordability, the number one issue is not COVID, the number one issue is not the Sovereignty Act, the number one issue is affordability, uh, she could hang it on affordability. She mentioned those other things, but she could hang it on affordability, come out with measures where a lot of people got something, and also at the same time use it as an occasion to tell people that uh, her ideas have changed. But by packing in, Rob, by packing in so much stuff into the speech, right. she didn't really give, if she had stuck to, here's the affordability measures, yeah. and we're going to do more. And then that took like three minutes. And then the rest of the time, if she had spent saying, look at 
I was on talk shows. I, I was hosting talk shows. I was in the media. I took controversial positions. And many of those positions have evolved or changed because I listened to you and I've grown and I've learned. And then explain to us what, what that means. Because you've read books. I've read books of people who have changed their political positions. People can change. Of course they can. But they usually explain how they changed, right? not just that they changed. And she just didn't have time because of the way the speech was structured. But I was, I'm really interested in finding out, okay, what ideas did she have six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, when she was working for Chorus, when she was working elsewhere, when she was campaigning for leader? What of the UCP? What were the ideas the philo- you know the philosophical positions that she had that she has now abandoned I mean I think we have a right to know that don't you I mean there's sure. an election in May we should we should know how much of this is a you know real change and how much of this is electioneering <laughs> and there's a, of course it's politics so there is some electioneering I mean that's just the way things go but but uh, I, I would like to know how she changed. I mean, unless she's talking about some of the stuff she's already walked back, like the you know the Ukraine stuff comes to mind, for example. But otherwise, maybe it's just deliberately vague. It's kind of like saying, "Hey, that thing you don't like about Danielle Smith, that's probably not true anymore," and just leaving it to voters to sort of fill in. Or, or yeah, or or which is sort of a very uh, a variation of what you just said, which is maybe she's anticipating that her opposition will have all co- kinds of other things, maybe audio, maybe yeah. video, maybe editorial, you know, columns she wrote, whatever, and that they've got that ammunition ready, and she's sort of doing a preemptive strike and saying, well, you know what, probably that stuff they have, whatever it is, the unnamed stuff, is not me now. Right. So she's getting out in front of in front of what I'm, I'm guessing that she may also be trying to get in front of what she anticipates to be the opposition talking about, you know, papers she's written. As you saw, we had a paper where she was talking about co-payments for health care where, you know, there were deductibles that you would pay, you know, all that stuff. So maybe she's saying, look, at she probably her people and perhaps herself realize there's stuff out there. and Maybe it's a preemptive strike. But I'd be really curious to know what positions in reality she no longer holds. Yeah. I think it would be fascinating to find that out. Yeah, it would be. Now, it's interesting. It's tomorrow we're going to hear from the finance minister. We'll get the, the uh, latest fiscal update. And we'll have a sense of uh, you know, where things are at with the government's bottom line. Because you know, $2.4 billion in total and what was announced yesterday, that's not small potatoes exactly here. And so there's a fine line, I guess, they're trying to walk here and, and saying, no, look, we're still fiscally conservative, but, you know, we're going to rain down some money here at the same time. Yes, and, and she has stated, uh, she stated it at the uh, speech she gave uh, to the Chamber of Commerce last week. She did talk about that she's interested in, you know, debt repayment, and she's interested in fiscal responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the more immediate, that's all true. I believe that about her, that that's all true. Her her fiscal conservatism, I believe that's not one of the ideas uh, she has abandoned or changed or evolved on. But 
there is some short there's a short term project here. The election is creeping up on us very quickly here. Yeah. And once the Christmas holidays come through, you know, we're you know, you can see it clearly when the election is. So I think that you know, that I, I think making us happy is going to be a key priority. And I don't know if making us happy means we have to talk a lot about, you know, because the surplus is going to be a gazillion, bazillion dollars, and you took a bill, a two, two and a half billion out of that. I think it's, you know, people, I think she wanted to give people something. Mm-hmm. And, and there is a genuine problem with inflation, so it was real. It's not like this was made up, that this was somehow constructed by the government. There is an inflation crisis, absolutely. So I think they're going to be focusing more on on the electoral, you know, things that work with the public, things that move the needle in the public opinion polls. Every politician I know says they aren't governed by polls, and every politician I know is governed at least in part <laughs> yeah. by polls. And I think I think she's going to focus on that stuff. Well, there is still the Sovereignty Act. And I mean, you know, she touched yep. on it last night. That's obviously something that, that matters to her supporters. She can't back away from it now. Maybe water it down a little bit. What's well, your sense? remember she changed the name. So now right. it's a Alberta within a United Canada Sovereignty Act. Right. Just to make sure that you're, you know, your Canadian passport, you don't have to clutch it as, as firmly as you did uh, before she talked about that. So she's changing the title. And... We know that from the original concept of the Sovereignty Act, which, as you well know, was supposed to be, the exercise was supposed to challenge the courts, was supposed to really shake things up. Uh, You know, that has been watered down somewhat already. So the expectation is it's going to be something that they can use, and they're still going to emphasize that uh, it will force the federal government to... To take Alberta to court rather than the other way around, but this idea that they're going to storm ahead, even if the Supreme Court says they can't, that part has already been abandoned early in the game. So it is not quite as hardcore as it was before, and now they've changed the name to to say that it isn't a separatist thing either. This isn't like separatism by stealth. But it will be. But again, it's good. The, the, the big thing about the Sovereignty Act debate is it, it, it takes away from these other issues which are top of mind, like affordability. Right. But she has to do it because she has a base of supporters that she has, she has to keep at least somewhat, uh, you know, satisfied with what she's doing. But it does take away a part of it. And, of course, there's going to be another piece of legislation, correct, which is the human rights protection for the unvaccinated under the provincial human rights law. And that one will bring COVID up again. Do you notice something about the speech last night? Right. (laughs) No mention of her view on COVID. Nothing. At the beginning, she said something like, we've been through a tough few years and now we're moving on. But she never talked about COVID. She talked about health care, mm-hmm. but not COVID. Because, you know, they know that talking on and on about COVID is not a winner. So, again, I think it has to be seen. It, we're talking politics here. It has to be seen through the fact that we have an election coming up. 
And, you know, there's a good chance the UCP could win the election if they play their cards right. But they have to play their cards right. Mm -hmm. And some of the things in the beginning when she came into the game as the UCP leader, she was not playing the cards right. And now this is this is we're now seeing her trying to show us. I don't know if it's another Danielle or another side of Danielle or Danielle 2.0 or 3.0. I have no idea. But something that people can identify with more. You know, they're having problems with the grocery bills. They're they're upset with it. Here's 600 bucks. You know, at least it's concrete, as mm-hmm. opposed to talking about some of this other stuff. Yeah, exactly. Which Your is latest, not so concrete. Yeah, it's up at calgarysun.com. Rick Bell, always a pleasure. Thanks for making some time for us here today. No, anytime. Thank you. All the best. Cheers. Rick Bell, Calgary Sun columnist, uh, his latest on, on the Premier's speech last night. And are they trying to show a, a different side or a different face here uh, to a Premier who has, you know, taken some controversial opinions and maybe some, some missteps initially? But some concrete announcements for sure last night. We'll we'll get into all the details. Your thoughts as well, 403-974-8255. We're back with more right after this. But I want to begin in this hour with the latest on Bill C-21 and the government's uh, so-called ban on assault-style weapons or ban on so-called assault-style weapons because this definition of what constitutes an assault weapon uh, seems very confusing very vague, even more so now after some last-minute amendments to Bill C-21, which appear now to include hundreds of additional rifles and shotguns in this ban. So this seemed to come out of nowhere, and I think just raises more questions about what the hell is, is this legislation aimed at doing? What is it that the government is banning? Obviously, there's a cost to all of this because the government's prepared to spend billions of dollars to buy back these uh, these firearms. And now that list seems to have grown considerably. So joining us to talk about what exactly has changed here in Bill C-21 and, and what we make of those changes, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Tony Bernardo, Executive Director with the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Tony, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Rob. It's nice to be back. I mean, it's been two years since the government first proposed this uh, ban on so-called assault-style weapons, and and now suddenly here we are at the 11th hour, and and things seem to have changed dramatically. What's your understanding? Well, it looks like now they're going after everything that is uh, semi-automatic in design, and that includes hunting rifles. Uh, So we have another approximately 450 makes and models put in, by name, that will take the total now to over 2,500 makes and models since they started. But we've also got now huge categories. For example, any firearm that is A, semi-automatic, B, centerfire, C, has a detachable box magazine, is automatically prohibited. Now, these firearms date back to 1903. Right. And they've been used as common hunting firearms all over the world and, and, and very common in Canada. And uh, all of a sudden, poof, they're on the list. So now, so we don't alarm people. The stuff is not banned today. It will be banned when Bill C-21 passes, which would be approximately next fall. Right. Now, I mean, certainly there, there are gun control advocates who, who wanted to see a ban on semi-automatic 
firearms, but the government never argued that there was a need to ban semi-automatic firearms. Uh, they, they were no. talking more about what they deemed as assault weapons. But I guess part of the problem here is it was never really clear what they meant by assault weapon, right? Well, an assault weapon is a made-up Hollywood term. It means whatever you think it means. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they uh, had an assault weapons bill in the United States at one point in time, and some of the things that they had on there were the most cockamamie things that you've ever seen in your life. You know, like things like a pistol grip would make it an assault weapon. Well, a, a pistol grip is just a piece of plastic screwed on the bottom. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't change the firearm in any way, shape, or form. But it was it was things like that, and and it was so incredibly vague that in the United States, in a couple of years, it collapsed under its own weight, and was repealed. Now we're we're looking at this situation here, which is exactly the same thing. The government still has no definition of what an assault weapon is. There's nothing. I heard the you know the minister made some vague reference today in his comments to velocity. Um, but I mean, it really sounds like he's. He's getting into to an area that he's really not comfortable with. I don't know that he even really understands, uh, you know, what, what these terms mean to talk about velocity or ammunition. With respect, right? with respect to the minister, I'm not sure he understands anything about his job, to be perfectly honest with you. Mm-hmm. Because you think that the job of the public safety minister was to be to keep Canadians safe. And in fact, all of these shootings that we've been witnessing and they have escalated every single year since the Liberals took power, you'd think that they would be looking at those. But all of those have been committed, or the vast majority of those, have been committed with firearms smuggled in from the United States. Mm-hmm. They're not even subject to Canadian law. Right, and, and primarily we're talking about handguns, aren't we? When we talk about... Primarily, you know, yeah. That, that's you know. the firearm of choice for drug thugs. Right. Yeah. And you know the reason that we have drug thugs carrying these firearms is because we have drug thugs. We have an out-of-control drug trade that really, really needs to be shut down. And as one of the main tools of the trade, the drug dealers carry weapons in order to protect their drugs. Right. And, and to uh, fight I'm over sure terms. That's no revelation, right? <laughs> Oh, exactly. So in the meantime, what, what does this mean now to firearms owners, lawful, licensed uh, firearms owners? Well, we're not really sure yet because, you know, the, first of all, this document is rather large. It's two parts. One part is 169 pages and the other part is 309 pages. So you can imagine that in 24 hours, we really haven't had time to read mm-hmm. it all. Exactly. You know, but there are a number of firearms in there, like, for example, prohibition on the SKS rifle, which is very common. Um, it is a semi-automatic uh, centerfire, but it does not have a detachable box magazine, but a magazine is stationary. And in Canada, there's over half a million of them, and they're all non-restricted, So, which means there, there is no registration of these firearms. And how, in God's name, the government has decided that they can somehow manage to round up a half a million of one type of firearm that they have no idea where they are. This just strikes me as being some kind of fantasy wish. 
Now, they've talked about implementing this buyback, and it's not clear how exactly that's going to work or who's going to administrate it. But we know that that comes with a considerable price tag. And, Tony, now that we're into the realm here where the government's going to vastly expand the definition of assault weapon and add hundreds of more firearms to the list, what, what does this do to this, the cost of this buyback? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Rob, because we're not sure. Like, the, the buyback was part of the order in council. What this change does is it takes the May 2020 order in council and it merges it into Bill C-21. And so far in those 500-odd pages, we have not been able to find the words buyback or compensation anywhere in those documents. Something else so, the minister, like, yeah, go ahead. Did, did it just, like, not make the transition that, ooh, whoopsie, we forgot? Now, as you we say, don't know, yeah. but... In, in, in the previous move, which is also part of C-21, and that was the handgun freeze, mm -hmm. they, they're freezing the, uh, the, the uh, transfer of handguns. So that means that an individual who has them gets to keep them, but when they die, the, the Crown seizes them. Well, wait a minute. That's, that's financial generational wealth that belongs to my family, and you're going to just take it? Oh, that's that's not kosher. Mm -hmm. You know, the Annapolis decision says that that's not kosher. You've got to be able to pay for the things the government takes. So, are they abandoning the entire principles of compensation, or is this whole thing just a gigantic election stunt? Yeah, I do wonder. Now, it was interesting to hear the minister talk about the importance of thoughtful deliberation, uh, which kind of flies in the face with how they've, they've approached this, this whole process. Um, you know, we are still months away, as you say, from, from this, you know, actually passing, but it doesn't feel to me, and probably not to you, I'm guessing, that we've had any degree of thoughtful deliberation here. Uh, no, no, there's been no thoughtful deliberation at all. Why would you take a country who is... Uh, really, really in serious financial shape, and then commit to removing billions of dollars of property wealth from the society without compensation for that wealth. But this just doesn't make any sense. This is so dumb it sounds like something that the feds would do to Alberta. Well, so where does this all go from here? I know, I know there's some, some court challenges. Albert is looking to get involved in those court challenges. I don't know if it changes the dynamic of that, but obviously there, there are other things happening here. Yeah, and we, and we don't know, again, how it changes that dynamic because the court challenges are primarily based against the ordering council. Well, if they merge the ordering council into the legislation, does that change the court challenges? Oh, again, we don't know. It's only been one day. Um, we're, we're very pleased that, that Alberta has chosen to represent its citizens uh, properly by becoming involved in this because I know it matters to Albertans. In fact, it matters to all Canadians. It just seems that uh, your government cares a little bit more about its citizens than some of the other ones do. We'll leave it uh, there for now, Tony. We'll see where this all goes from here, but appreciate your perspective on all this. Thanks for joining us here. And anytime, Rob. Thank you very much. All the best. Tony Bernard is president or executive director, rather, of the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. So uh, I think like a lot of people just trying to, to make sense of all of this. So a sudden swerve here from the federal government, uh, last minute uh, amendments at the committee level to Bill C-21, which it seems takes what has uh, been deemed as an assault weapons ban and is basically turning it into uh, a semi-automatic rifle ban.
I guess if you want to defend that, then then fill your boots. But that's not what was talked about. That's not what was promised. And that's something very different. Uh, speaking of Alberta's position here, uh, Justice Minister Tyler Shandro releasing a statement today, which says in part, with the amendments tabled on November 22nd, it's become increasingly clear that these actions, speaking of what Alberta's done already to oppose Bill C-21, are not enough. The federal government is clearly seeking to ban legal firearms ownership altogether. Not quite, but okay. He says in the coming weeks, Alberta will explore all available options to take action. So we'll see what comes of that. At that point, uh, CSIS uh, was uh, assessment uh, was that we did not see specific uh, actions being taken uh, that would characterize a threat to the security of Canada. Okay, welcome to this hour, folks. Rob Breckenridge with you. That was yesterday. CSIS Director David Vigneault uh, testifying in the public inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. And in that clip addressing something we learned last week, that at the time the Emergencies Act was invoked, the assessment from CSIS was that this protest, this uh, convoy, all of it did not constitute a threat to national security, at least as defined under the CSIS Act. But David Vigneault also testified that despite that, it was his recommendation that the Emergencies Act be invoked, that he said that directly to the prime minister the day before the prime minister announced that decision. Here's David Vigneault on that. You know, the confines of the CSIS Act, the same words based on, on legal interpretation, jurisprudence, federal court rulings, and so on, there was a very clear understanding of what those words meant in the confines of the CSIS Act. And what I, uh, I was reassured by is that there was, you know, in the context of the Emergencies Act, there was to be a separate interpretation based on the confines of that, that act. So we're getting into the weeds a little bit here, but ultimately this is at the core of this inquiry. Was it justified invoking the Emergencies Act? Did the situation as it presented itself on February 14th constitute a threat to national security? Was it a public order emergency? So there are some legal thresholds here. And some overlap and some similarities between the CSIS Act and the Emergencies Act. So how do we make sense of all of this? Well, joining us to try to unpack this a little bit uh, a little bit further here is Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, former National Security Analyst and contributing author as well to the Center for International Government's Innovation. Professor Carvin, good to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. So we feel like, or it feels maybe to the layman here, like we've got some some contradictions between the advice from CSIS and the assessment of CSIS, what's in the CSIS Act, what's in the Emergencies Act. What do you make of all of this? So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, look, there's a, the, the Emergencies Act has a couple of requirements to invoke, right? This isn't just something that you do because, um, you know, your Uber Eats is late and you're upset. Uh, you have to actually have a good reason to do so. And there's four different kinds of emergencies in, in the Emergencies Act. So you have the public order, uh, which is the one going now, but there's other kinds of emergencies as well, like war and things like this. So in the case of a public order uh, emergency, uh, basically there has to be, you know, like a, a, serious, a serious issue um, and it can't, be dealt with by any law in Canada, and at the same time, um, it cannot be, uh, you know, it has to reach the threshold that's set out in the CSIS Act, right? And the CSIS Act has four different threats to it, espionage, clandestine foreign interference, 
terrorism, and subversion. Um, so when we talk about 2C, what we're talking about is the terrorism. Um, and this is what the debate is now. So you know, was this a terrorist threat? Um, if you look at the wording of 2C, it doesn't actually use the word terrorism. It uses like, uh, you know, serious political violence for political, ideological, or religious cause, right? Okay, so that's, that's the act. Okay. And what the government is saying is that basically CSIS has to take a very narrow understanding of its mandate for a number of reasons. One is that it has to get warrants from judges, right? So it has to, uh, you know, it has to convince a judge that, you know, if it's doing a serious investigation to someone that it's actually pretty serious and that, you know, it has to meet a very, very high threshold in order to do that. That threshold uh, for national security nerds is, is the, there has to be sufficient reason to believe that someone's involved in threats to the security of Canada and that also, you know, CSIS has very extraordinary powers, so you want to limit the cases that those powers can be used. And then thirdly, because of all of the national security oversight that CSIS faces, you know, again, it only wants to use its most serious powers in uh, the most serious circumstances. So by that, for that reason, CSIS takes a very limited view of its mandate. The government, however, <laughs> this is the argument, yeah. which is novel, um, is basically saying that CSIS has to take a narrow view, but we can take a wider view of what a threat to the national of, of, to security candidate is, right? We can look at that legislation, and we don't have to interpret it through the same lens as CSIS because we're cabinet. And first of all, cabinet has powers to do these kinds of things and is responsible for the government of Canada and protecting Canada. Um, and also, you know, because it's not using the same kinds of authorities and rules and things like that, uh, it's, or, you know, because it's, it's, it's in a different kind of circumstance, that it can take this broader view. So that's where we are right now, right? So the question is, in, in a nutshell, and I appreciate that was a bit of a rant, um, that can you know can the government does the government have to interpret the CSIS Act through the same lens that the service interprets its own act or can it take this wider view right and that's what uh justice rulo is going to have to decide on okay it, it's interesting to me because I, I can understand at some level that this decision not be essentially contracted out to CSIS so the government's not beholden necessarily to CSIS's uh, assessment but the wording is pretty clear so where does that leave us so this is just it kind of comes down to what are the cabinet's powers like to get super policy nerd about it right, right? i mean you have uh, you have like the executive in canada right and the executive has the power to you know actually some pretty extraordinary power if you think about it to uh run the government of canada so the question is does that power include the ability to take this wider view and is that dangerous or not so um i mean where i think this this is ultimately going is the fact that the both the CSIS act and the emergencies act both of which were created in the 1980s right within three years of each other yeah. are outdated and are in need of some kind of modernization and so but the problem is it's like so so again this kind of gets to, to the to the point like you you can't you have to deal with the laws you have, not the laws you want to have. Right. And so I think I think where we're going with this is that we are going to have to modernize these pieces of legislation, hopefully sooner rather than later. I mean, a lot of us in the national security community have been pushing for the modernization of CSIS authorities for some time, not because we want to give CSIS huge powers, but because 
you know, technology has changed. And, you know, when CSIS was formed, like the, the, the highest form of technology was a fax machine. You know, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we can't continue to have this as as kind of the, uh, the standard. We need to we need we need a, uh, a thesis act that reflects modern technology and how we want modern security services to be dealing with our most sensitive data, right? In ways that protect our privacy, uh, but also our security. And so, these are the kinds of things we need the government to grapple with, and we've been calling for this for some time. It's just unfortunate that it's taken a national emergency to get us here. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, unrelated to the the inquiry, uh, the National Post reporting today on an internal briefing document that says, uh, indeed, that CSIS has failed to keep up with today's national security threats, hampered by governing legislation that has barely changed since the days of, as you know, fax machines and, and phone books. So, you know, th- this is the internal assessment at CSIS that they're not able to keep up on these threats. Yeah, and, and I don't think the director's been shy about this. I mean, right. if you read a lot of the CSIS reports, if you've heard him speak, they're always saying, look, our authorizations, our, our, our authorities are out of date. They have not kept up with time. They have not kept up with um, where we need to go and, and, and where we need to be. And, you know, the problem is, like, like what we need is, is legislative certainty, right? Like, we need, like... Believe it or not, like I think a lot of times people think that spy agencies want to operate in the gray, like ooh gray zone. And so, no, they don't want to operate in the gray at all. They want to operate with legal certainty because they know if they mess up, there's going to be a commission of inquiry where they have to testify again, right? So it's like they actually want clear lines, like where do you want us to go? How do you want us to deal with these issues? And you know, can you make those hard choices? So that's what. CSIS is asking for. They're not asking for greater power. So, I, you know, I think, I, think, I think they'd love greater power, to be honest. But, I mean, um, and we can have a whole discussion about that. But what they're actually asking for is legislative certainty. It seems to me, though, you know, the, the convoy protests and what was happening in Ottawa was happening at the border crossings, even as much as it was kind of organized in a digital world, it was kind of analog almost in its application. It's something that, that theoretically we could have seen a generation ago, maybe for different reasons. How, how do we view something like this in, in this context? Well, I think this is exactly it. Like, I mean, and, and this is another question we have, and it's going to be interesting to see how Justice Rouleau kind of comes down on this, right? Because you have this situation, which is, again, all over the country. Um, You have, um, you know, in their legal argument, um, basically the the government saying, look, we think this is escalating. We think this is getting worse, not getting better. This is around February 13th, 14th. Um, There's just been these arrests in Coots, Alberta, and stuff like this. And, yeah, you're right. We've never seen anything like this and the emergencies act hasn't prepared us for something like it, it's it's not you know i think a couple of things one what i think that the, the biggest problem here is the emergencies act assumes that everyone would do their job right right, right. what happens exactly. when key actors like like the province of ontario decides not to do their job yeah. or that the ottawa police don't seem to be able to do their job i think this is a big issue it's like because it's like the emergencies act assumes that you know there's this kind of escalation where people can't do their job and they can't do their job and they can't do their job and then um or is that like you know like they, they but they're trying right like they're doing but like we we're in a situation where this simply doesn't seem like it was it was happening at all so i think that's the other thing it was like you know, the Emergencies Act is built on this assumption that 
this is something that we can, you know, all work on together. <laughs> no, that didn't happen at all. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. So I think that's one thing that we're going to have to deal with. And secondly, what do you do in these kind of situations where, you know, in like, like there is clear disruption in the streets of Ottawa and no one seems to be able to do anything about it. And, you know, uh, that there's a repeated attempts to take border crossings, um, like, you know, even as Coots, Alberta is, is settling down. Um, it, it's just hard. And so I think we need to, like, sit down and think really hard about, like, what threats will be. I mean, like, what about a massive cyber attack or that, you know, that hits our critical infrastructure? Is that covered by the act? Um you know, I'd have to look at and, and see, but it's not clear. It's like so. I think this is one of the, the key issues that we have is that you know, in Canada, especially when it comes to national security legislation, we tend to pass a bill every ten to fifteen years and then wipe our hands and say, "Okay, mission accomplished. We never have to think about this again." Whereas in other countries like Australia, Britain, the United States, they're constantly updating their legislation to meet with new security and tech challenges. And I'm not saying they've always got it right because Lord knows they've got it wrong in a lot of cases, but at least they can update their legislation quickly and repair it quickly where it needs to, to, to be checked. And I think this is something we have to get better at in Canada. We don't have a lot of legislative capacity. It's hard to pass bills in our country. It's a very slow process, but we need, for the sake of not trying to legislate in the middle of a national security crisis, this is something we have to get better at. Great point. We'll leave it on that note. Uh, see what the rest of the week brings us here. Stephanie Sorry Carvin, <laughs> appreciate the insight. I'm a lot of testimony, Bob. <laughs> oh, no kidding. All right. Oh, but thanks again. Appreciate it. All Thank the best. Thank you so much. Cheers. Stephanie Carvin, associate professor, Carleton University, uh, national security analyst. So kind of getting into the weeds of the legislation, but where there's this different interpretation from the government that they're trying to advance here, uh, that they have a, a broader leeway under the Emergencies Act and the more narrow confines of the CSIS Act. But that's not necessarily true because there is some specific wording that mirrors what's in the CSIS Act about declaring a, a national security threat. And if CSIS had already declared uh, that in their view it was not a threat to national security, what gives the government or cabinet the ability to conclude otherwise? So that's an important question. He said he could not sign on to that final communique because it talked about phasing out of oil and natural gas. And because natural resources are provincial jurisdiction, they would face legal challenge if they did that, that they probably would not win. So when we assert our rights to develop our natural resources, the, the federal government has to listen. They're beginning to get the message. Well, was the uh, premier delivering the keynote address today to the Canadian Association of Energy Contractors. Now, you know, between the uh, disagreement, shall we say, between Alberta and Ottawa, there is some optimism uh, about the state of the industry heading into next year and coming out of what's been a, a difficult few years. Uh, the latest uh, drilling forecast from the CAOEC uh, looking toward a increase next year of uh, 15% in uh, drilling activity. Uh, total uh, jobs expected uh, also seeing an increase uh, of over 5,000 year over year. So this all sounds really positive. 
Anyway, joining us to talk about uh, the outlook for next year and beyond and where we're maybe still facing some headwinds. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Mark Schultz, president and CEO of the Canadian Association of Energy Contractors. Mark, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Rob. So I, I, I like being able to talk about optimism in the sector. I mean, God knows we, we've had some, some really rough years. So 2022 has been positive. Things are looking up for 2023. So what's the, the reason for this optimism? Well, I mean, I, I think that there's certainly uh, on the commodity price side, we've seen some stability. Uh, there's no question that uh, we've moved away from some of those rock bottom pricing um, that really hurt our industry and our ability to attract uh, investment. But I think primarily, I think what it's saying is that there's a lot of interest in Canadian energy. And as we see the turmoil around the world, energy is uh, is very important, particularly um, reliability, accessibility and affordability. And so Canada has a huge opportunity to really showcase itself uh, on the world stage, but also to you know support our domestic uh, supply here as well. There's no question there's going to be some some uh, some challenges uh, as as we grow. Um, the big challenge for us, I think, is going to be just the attraction of labor. We've seen, you know, the last seven years, uh, our industry has just been really decimated and we're starting to grow. And so we're seeing some sustainable growth patterns, which I think will over time lead to uh, attraction of labor as we have a very ambitious clean technology ambition and, and the future growth of the sector looks uh, very bright. It's been interesting to, to see what's been happening with commodity prices, which have more or less been holding steady with some fluctuation clearly, but as there are signs of an economic slowdown. So I know that's the big concern, obviously, once the economy slows, we see commodity prices drop. But what's what's maybe different this time around? Yeah, that's not what we're seeing. I mean, although I, I do think that, that we're going to have the fragility in the global uh, economic um, environment, no question in 2023 is, is, is going to be difficult and we're going to see a lot of volatility and you know, whoever you you talk to um, from uh, research um, uh, industry side of things, I mean, they'll say that 2023 we're approaching, you know, a recession both here in Canada, United States, and potentially abroad. Um, but the, the, the interesting piece is that I think there's been such an underinvestment in in energy in general, both on the hydrocarbon side, but also on the renewable side. Um, we have uh, we still continue to see uh, energy uh, demand across uh, the globe, uh, both North America as well as uh, in kind of the developing uh, world, China, India. And so that has to come from somewhere. And because of the lack of investment over really the last seven years, uh, we really don't see our industry in particular, um, the energy sector, uh, feeling much of that uh, kind of blow when it comes to, uh, you know, the recession talk which is actually a really good news story for Canada because mm-hmm. one of the things that Canada, I think, can rely on as we kind of potentially go through a recessionary period is that Western Canada and our resource uh, resource industries in, in Canada are going to help uh, protect and insulate um, some parts of the Canadian economy, but in particular, insulate and stabilize uh, government revenue. And everyone knows that uh, from a taxation perspective, those those dollars uh, from the Treasury go to uh, provide health care, education, and social programs. And so as we go through a bit of a bumpy road, the energy sector, I think, is going to be in great position to continue to stabilize government revenues uh, over this, uh, these uh, difficult times.
Yeah, and, and also as we look to 2023, uh, as noted in this report, you know, we've got some some big milestones, potentially the completion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, further progress on the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. What's, what's the impact of, of those two? Well, it's huge because what it signals is that we can, we can, in fact, grow this industry, right? I mean, all we were talking about, you know, the last, you know, obviously during the last seven years of, of uh, decline uh, in commodity prices and the, and the sector kind of was in question about its ability to kind of drive capital investment. What we're seeing now is these are positive signs for confidence in our sector. It means that we have broader export capacity. Um, and that's obviously on the crude side. But the other piece that's so important on both the Coastal Gas Link and LNG Canada is that this will be the first LNG terminal ever built in Canadian history um, on the West Coast. And that means we can actually do something or at least support our allies across the world in delivering responsible Canadian LNG, which gets trans, uh, uh, transferred into natural gas, uh, to feed the world's energy demands. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about supporting our allies in Europe and, and some of the challenges that they have with restrictions of natural gas coming to Russia, this is our opportunity to shine, to show the, the world that we can get stuff built in Canada and we can actually share our resources with the world. So these, these are, you know, a, a good confidence, uh, positive confidence indication uh, to the investment world, and I think it it really I think showcases Canada on the world stage as a as a partner in the energy security piece. Right, and I think also speaks maybe to some mixed signals on the policy side, at, at least from Ottawa, where there's I think been some hints of of more openness toward building that kind of energy capacity, that sort of infrastructure, being able to to export LNG, et cetera. But at the same time, a federal government looking to get more aggressive with some of its environmental targets. So how do we try to suss out the the impact of federal policy here? Well, it's a balance, right? And and what I would say is we certainly have seen a pivot uh, with respect to the federal government. But I would say um, we've seen a pivot in in uh, I would say all kind of global economies, global leadership after we saw, you know, the devastation uh, and the impacts of the war in Ukraine. And I think that really put energy security and reliability firmly in front of policymakers. It was, look, we, we have to have a balance here. Like, um, and, and I think the industry is, as I had said uh, before on your show, is, is a partner when it comes to uh, decarbonization. We have yeah. great plans to to uh, to move in that direction on an environmental side, but it also means we have to strike a balance. And so I think governments, um, particularly very progressive governments on the environmental side, um, have had to you know take a time out to start reflecting on um, that security piece. And so yeah, pivots are are happening all across the the globe, and in particular in Ottawa. And so. Um, I think we're having very productive conversations. I mean, one of the things that we pointed out is we have a plan for decarbonization of the energy services space, but it's a partnership with government, and and we we want we want to work with them to help us achieve some of our targets. Absolutely, we'll leave it there, Mark. Much more at uh, caoec.ca. Appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you. All the best, uh, Mark Schultz, President and CEO of the Canadian Association of Energy Contractors, CAOEC which is an abbreviation, not an acronym, I don't think. Hiawak, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but uh, .ca is their website. You can read more there. So an optimistic forecast for 2023 uh, in terms of drilling activity in this country. Um,
So, for example, 2022, they're expecting a total number of wells drilled at just over 5,500, expecting that to increase to just over 6,400 next year. Projected operating days uh, up about 9,000 from, from this year. Total jobs expected, again, as mentioned, an increase of over 5,400 jobs year over year. So more jobs, more drilling, more days operating. That all bodes really well. As they note, 2023, expected to see the completion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, adding 590,000 barrels per day to the market. Coastal GasLink also anticipated to reach mechanical completion by the end of the year. Obviously, the entire LNG Canada project still a couple of years after that. So that's encouraging. So there is the shadow, I guess, of uh, the policy side, how that might impact things. Obviously, whatever might happen with the economy, commodity prices, you know, the OPEC countries can be a little unpredictable in how they approach all of this. But uh, I think, you know, the, the glass half full perspective in terms of this helping to, to blunt the impact of a recession here at home. That's important to keep in mind. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.